0: He really believed that the Bible was describing a reality that was the widest, truest, most human, and most holy reality that exists. Welcome to The Habit Podcast,
1: conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Wynn Collier is the director of the Eugene Peterson Center for Christian Imagination at Western Seminary in Holland, Michigan. He was friends with Eugene Peterson and was chosen by the Peterson family to write his biography. That biography, A Burning in My Bones, has recently released. I do want to mention one thing that we didn't get around to in the main interview. Eugene Peterson Center is currently taking applications for a doctor of ministry cohort focused on the sacred art of writing. You can find a link to that program in the show notes for this episode. Wynn Collier, I am so excited that you're on The Habit Podcast today. Thanks for being here.
0: Well, it's good to be here. Thank you for asking me. <laughs> you um I, I, we're
1: going to be releasing this episode about the same time that that I think the same week that you will be releasing your new authorized biography of Eugene Peterson called A Burning A Burning in the Bones, A Burning in My Bones,
0: Burning in My Bones. Burning in my burning bones. Burning in my bones. Uh
1: such a such a, a great uh I've, I've read most of it at this point and and by the time this Releases. I will have read all of it because I will continue uh, until I'm done with this uh, this biography because it's it's so good. So you were friends with Eugene Peterson. Uh, tell me about that. Well, in
0: uh, 1999, I was a bivocational pastor at a small struggling church in Denver, and my wife was in the grad school, and uh, I was in way over my head. And one of the elders after church on a Sunday came up to me and handed me a copy of Eugene's working the angles, the shape of pastoral integrity. And uh-huh. it was one of his, his, uh, pastoral theology books. And he handed it to me and he said, Hey, when I, I think you'll like this. And I came to realize later what he meant was, I think you need this. And <laughs> so I went home and I'd, I'd really been struggling without, I think, being that aware of it of how much I was, um, trying to come to terms with what it actually meant to be a faithful pastor in our time. And Eugene, I was only a couple paragraphs in and, and something just smote my heart. And uh, I all of a sudden was invited into a world and a vocabulary and a, huh. uh, an imagination that just sort of awakened things in me. And over the coming years, my first, my first book was coming out, I think in 2004 and the publisher had also published Eugene and I got me his address and, and I, um, started writing him and became a pastor to me, um, Mm -hmm. uh, through letters. And I thought I was really unique until two decades later. And I had literally thousands of letters in my (laughs) cellar, you know, (laughs) realizing how many people were writing him and, uh, And uh, so, um, um, had some chance to meet him in Alaska and, um, and then in 2016, I was in, in Montana for a retreat and assumed it would probably be my last time to see him. And, uh, when I was flying back home, I started thinking about how somebody was going to write his story and, you know, um, a biography can be a beautiful thing. It can also be a a really ugly thing. And, uh, and so, um, I just, I really hope there'd be full written about him and someone who was doing something different than just outlining the facts. And yeah. um, so I ended up writing him a letter, just telling him what my, what my hope was for his future story, knowing that the last thing in the world he cared about was having somebody write his biography. Mm-hmm. And he called me a week or two later and, and, uh, we started talking about this and I said, Eugene, um. Does this make you tired or does it give you energy? And he just paused for a second and he said, ah, oh, it makes me tired. And I just assumed that would be the end of it. But for some reason we kept chatting and, and he ended up saying, when I think I'm energized now, I think you're supposed to write this. And um, wow. so the next okay. couple of years I got to be just really immersed in his life with, with, with he and Jan a lot and with him at the lake and interviewing people Scores of people who have known them in different seasons of their life, and um, reading through, you know, sixty journals or so of he and Jan's, and so it just mm-hmm. really got to be on the inside. Yeah. yeah.
1: So and and so when Eugene Peterson, you said he got lots and lots of letters. He didn't use email, is that right?
0: Correct. Not not till a little bit with just his fr- family and a few a few close friends right toward the end of his uh-huh. life, but or that uh-huh. no.
1: And so when he re- when he replied to those letters, he would make a copy of his reply and file it, right? So we'd have the both the letter that came to him and the letter he sent out.
0: Most often, yes. That's a huge boon for a biographer. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And lots of it lots of them were scattered over time, but he, he tried to organize them.
1: Yeah. Did um um he just had a copy machine there in his in his little Basement. How did he make um, this copy?
0: Yeah. Uh well, um, I mean, a lot of times he was um he was obviously he he was using the computer for his own, so he would do his own okay. gotcha. letter. I and see. then ones coming in, yeah, he he had a, a little, you know, one of those little combo fax. He he did fax a fair bit too. Hmm. Um so so he had one of those combo of printer copier things.
1: Um, um you, you said that he was you, you talk more than once in this book about his reluctance to give advice, right? And and so all these people are writing Eugene Peterson for advice, you included. Um, and and yet he's reluctant to give advice back. What is he what does he give? What did he give instead of advice? And why was he so reluctant to give advice?
0: Yeah. Well, I would say he actually gave advice, but it was, it was uh, with lots of caveats, you know? Um, Yeah. Um, I I think, you know, to him, um, everything, everything that was true uh, was relational and nothing Mm -hmm. could be uh, just duplicated, uh, mass produced. And so I think he was, he was, reticent to give dev- advice because he didn't think his experience was somebody else's experience. Yeah. And he also didn't want to get in the way of someone's own journey. I think also he was a terrified of the, um, terrified is probably not the right word. He was, uh, immensely resistant to be becoming a guru or a celebrity. Mm-hmm. and so i think he just resisted everything like people were assuming that he knew things that he didn't really know and so he was speaking as as eugene and he didn't want to speak as more than that
1: mm-hmm. yeah you you talk about and and, and and it's not just you i mean i've heard this and i've always Thought of Eugene Peters in these terms is, is, you know, earthiness was so important to him. You know, one of the first books I ever read of his was actually um, not one of his more well known books, but, you know, Leap Over a Wall, and the, the subtitle contains the word earthy. You know, he's talking about the David story and the earthiness of, of the David story. And actually, um, that, that book has a really important part of my history as a, as a writer. You know, I, I read uh, that book. And then went and, um, uh, it was the same week I had spent some time in a, in a swamp, and um, and those two things kind of joined together to, to ins- become the beginning of, of the, the series of stories I wrote, kind of swampy adventure fiction that kind of retells the story of David. And it was because I had, it, it, well, I said I read, that's not true, I didn't read. Leap Over Wall, I some a friend gave me the tapes of the sermon series that Leap Over Wall was based on. And those that his way of talking about the David story um, awakened in me a sense of of just the narrative possibilities in that story and, and made me want to go write some novels, which I did. And um, and so um and, and earthiness is such an important Way of you know, part of of his worldview, for lack of a better word, and that really shaped my thinking about how you tell stories. And so I want to. T- I mean, let's talk about earthiness and and what that what that means. What you mean when you when you describe him as earthy? Um,
0: yeah, yeah. In some ways, I'm trying to sort of use his own language um, in that sense. But yeah, right. I, yeah, I think that um, I think a it kind of connects to what we were just talking about that he he was just so resistant to abstractions mm-hmm. you know he didn't think you had anything to say to the world until you had lived well in your neighborhood and one of his other uh things he believed deep in his heart was that all the- theology cannot can never theology can never be separated from geography oh wow so uh, you, you have to know the particulars of the people in your pew, the stories they're living. Um, I think it's why, over the last decade of his life, he read so much more fiction than he did theology because he thought there was something that was um, being fragmented in our religious thinking that novelists helped to pull back together and poets too. And yeah, um, so um, I mean, you can never understand Eugene without understanding Flathead Valley. In Montana,
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: it wasn't just a, a place he was from. It was a place that was deeply embedded in him, and it shaped him and how he saw the world. And um, and so, being a butcher's son, I mean, he never stopped being the son of a butcher. Yeah. And yeah. what it was like to have those smells in his nostrils of <laughs> of entrails and and uh, you know freshly cut meat and butchers who who had some body odor and um the different different people who would come in and the characters who would come in and and how that integrated with his life in the church and his life at home and and so um you know he he was just always drawn to things that were that were sensual that were tactile yeah. and he thought that that as a Christian this was the way it's supposed to be incarnation mm-hmm. <laughs> that, yeah. that we're immersed in the physical realities of the world and that it just made no sense to him how these things could ever be severed.
1: Yeah, I, I remember him talking to um, uh, Krista Tippett on her her podcast and, and saying something along the lines of, you know, if you're doing spiritual life right, it's not spiritual life. It's just life. <laughs> right. And I, I think that is so wise and helpful. Helpful to writers, too, by the way.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, he— he thought it was a mistake to use the word spiritual as an adjective Mm -hmm. because he said, as soon as you use it as an adjective, you're making it something specialized and separated from the rest of it. Mm -hmm. Um, Even then, I think even as a writer, it's really great to recognize how inconsistent he was because his, his five volume, um, you know, magnum opus uh, was called his, five volumes of spiritual theology, you know, Uh and whenever, you know, you would ask him about that, he would just kind of smile and chuckle. And he would say, I know I did the best I could. I couldn't think of what else to call it, you know? Um, So, yeah, I mean, he, he, he he really, really believed that um, Christian faith at its fullest and deepest and um, everything that's, real and true and physical and beautiful and awful and horrendous and hopeful that all these things were tied together and mm-hmm. and that's why he so loved novelists because he thought they gave us some eyes to see the world in ways that um, were becoming more and more impoverished um, in our modern world you know early on he wanted to be a novelist he thought that's what he was heading for when he was in high school yeah and uh, in some ways he never never got far from that storytelling, uh, bent. Yeah.
1: I mean, I, I, you quote him as saying for me, my congregation will become a work in progress, a novel in which everything, everyone and everything is connected in a salvation story in which Jesus has the last word, no reductions mm-hmm. to stereotype. Yeah. I, just, I think that's so great. You know, and, and yeah. th- the ways that he saw his, both his pastorate and his his writing as helping people see what's what's the story you're really living in right you, we've got these impoverished shrunk down stories that we think we're living in and he's saying hey y'all you're, you're living in this bigger story and that's and right. you know the fact that, that that idea that he saw his congregation as a as a novel
0: mm-hmm. really interesting. Yeah. that's right yeah it was uh it was all of a piece to him, and mm-hmm. I think that's why a lot of times he seemed so out of touch. Uh, even though many of us, you know, loved him dearly, like because he just didn't follow some of the assumptions that seemed to be guiding the way we think about the world, hmm. particularly in the Christian world. Some of the um, the ways we uh, polarities we set up binaries, um, yeah. the way the way the argument the old path and the old rut for, for, for arguments. He's just, I just, he just didn't think that way.
1: Yeah. no. Yeah. I, I love, you know, on the subject of his earthiness, I love something that, that you said about him. You said Eugene had an insatiable desire for the real, for the concrete, past any pretenses, deeper than the surface, beyond everything trite or theoretical. Eugene was always searching, open, always open to more, always on a quest for things that were true and solid. Um I think it's such a great way and such a helpful way to think about his life work um again both in his pastoring and in his and in his writing. Um and that suspicion of the theoretical that I think is would be so helpful for if more writers were suspicious of the theoretical, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I don't think I'm sufficiently suspicious of the theoretical. I love theories. <laughs> Me too. Isn't it nice to have a little theory that that you can then fit everything into? And, you know, yeah. I, I love those books. that will be like um, salt, the most important thing in the world. And you get got this theory where salt kind of shapes everything about the whole world or codfish or, you know, or books like, you know, Jared Diamond's books, which I, I love these things. I've got this theory that's going to explain everything. And I don't really believe them, but I think good for you, Jared Diamond, for coming up with a theory that explains everything <laughs> in the whole world. And you get the feeling that that. Uh, you know, Eugene Peterson wasn't having any of that.
0: Yeah, you're 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 certainly right. I, in um, that way, he sounds very similar to, um, you know, his literary friend, Wendell Berry, just a suspicion of the big ideas. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. And I think that goes back to, you know, what you were asking about at the beginning of why he was didn't like to give advice. I think he felt like advice too often was tied to theoretical. Mm -hmm. Um, it was trying to import one situation to another one story to another yeah he he would always say there's things to learn there's things to see there's truths to embrace but we're just too quick we're too quick
1: yeah that's uh so good um well maybe may you know may we all as writers you know be on a quest for things that are true and solid you know think think of our our work as a way to give people access to the, to the solid and the true rather than to the <laughs> rather than to advance. Here's this theory I've got.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a prayer. That's for sure. Huh.
1: This is from the the conclusion of your book, uh, when he had little time for what passed as spiritual writing overrun with questionable spirituality and mediocre writing in large swaths of the Christian, of the religious market. And now we're quoting, um, Eugene Peterson, I'm interested in more what I would call heuristic writing, discovering what is going on with our Lord, the spirit, and the soul, implicitly inviting others into a life of common prayer, writing that is almost maybe completely synonymous with prayer. Um, he goes on to say, writing of this kind is only marginally evident in the Christian community.
0: Yeah. So that, that was actually um, in Eugene's journal, Mm-hmm. So that was something he was he was writing. Um, and that was one of the beautiful things was h- hearing him process sort of some of his own ways of thinking about writing and struggles and you know, all the ordinary things of, oh man, this last month I haven't written a single good sentence, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, th- I think what he meant was writing that wasn't purely, used as a mode of information. Yeah. So something that was primarily designed to speak directly and only to the mind. And he believed that writing was so wide and expansive and language, not just writing, but what language is doing, how it's intended to operate. Why is it a sacred, a sacred thing for the human? Um, that heuristic writing is is a way that sort of bypasses, at times when it needs to, some of the um, linear moments to pierce something deeper. Now, he obviously, if you've ever read Eugene, you'd know, this doesn't mean like um, uh, writing that throws logic to the wind or writing that doesn't think the mind is essential, but it's saying not only and, yeah. and recognizing when he starts saying that writing that becomes prayer, I think it's back to this idea of removing these boundaries and barriers uh-huh. where we think, okay, now i knowledge. Now I'm going to take that knowledge and I'm going to apply it to my life. Now I'm going to take that application and I'm going to turn this into a prayer. Uh-huh. And, and he said, no, the, the human is a entire mind, soul, body, lover, longer, um, person who has hopes and dreams and fears and all of these things are happening and that, that we, we, ne- we have to be open to letting these categories be looser because mm-hmm. the spirit will blow where the spirit will. Yeah. And, and I think also he was so deeply read in the ancient church and um, he just recognized that what we were doing with words in the modern world was a fairly new invention. And he <laughs> was suspicious that we weren't, um, Getting this nearly as right as we think we are.
1: Yeah, I love that that you know you you talk about. And I think you're I don't remember if from his journals or from from one of his books. He, it says when he when he went to seminary, he kind of realized, oh, wait a minute, I I can use these uh, these texts are not the biblical texts are not something for me for me to master and to use, but something for me. You know, that this is a world for me to enter into, and that idea of entering in. Is and inviting other people in uh, is is so important to his his way of communicating. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, the way I've thought about that is that Eugene didn't use the Bible; he lived in it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and and that even that's kind of interesting because I think some of us could hear that and say, "Oh, that means he memorized a lot of Bible," um, which he did. He yeah. memorized yeah. huge chunks of the Psalter and mm-hmm. often in Hebrew, um, but. He, it meant that he really believed that the Bible was describing a reality that the, was the widest, truest, most human, and most holy reality that exists. And so, the metaphors of the Bible became gateways for him to even understand his own life. So he would say things like, um, "I I need to cross. I need to cross my Jordan," or. Um, this is this is my um, Ephraimites' bow, or she's our Shulamite's widow, and it wasn't like it was just a code. Like, oh, it's like that. It was much deeper. It was like, no, that is describing a reality that I'm also experiencing, and so it gives me a window into this world.
1: Yeah, yeah, um, and and that kind of entry, that kind of again, I may be using this this word heuristic wrong, but. But the the kind of writing that is inviting this you know entering into an experience you know it, this is from that that same passage I was from his from his uh, journal I was uh, reading from a minute ago he says as long as a person lives at the informational slash motivational level this kind of writing has no value and no interest mm-hmm. um you know, and I I think the implication being that so much of what you know Christian living, you know, the Christian living genre, for instance, is the informational and motivational, you know, level. And um, and he, he says, I, when I write, I'm not self-consciously praying, but afterwards there's often a sense of what I, what I can only call givenness. Mm-hmm. That the words on the page are not something that came just out of me, but rather while in a kind of receptivity. Yeah, Man, that is that is so good. And, mm-hmm. and so – you know so I guess insightful into to what it means to to write in a way that is that is meaningful, to be open to to receive, um, not and not just you know, I'm going to figure out how to express myself, but rather I'm going to receive and in receiving end up um, you know end up doing things I I didn't know I could do. you're saying things that that weren't actually in there <laughs> until I started doing the work uh i love when you talk about him you know getting a book back from the from the publisher and and reading it and saying this is really good i didn't know i knew this stuff and and uh, i think that's, uh, that's so so great and, yeah. and
0: so and also kind of what it's what it's like to to write well <laughs> yeah yeah well isn't in some ways isn't what we're talking about grace absolutely and, and
1: moving beyond the
0: bounds of your own talent
1: or ability or brilliance or whatever. And that's right.
0: Yeah. And there has to be a certain level of um, surrender of our ego yeah. to be able to, to go there. Because so long as I am self-obsessed by how good something is or um, you know, how it compares to something else or, or, or I'm primarily just trying to get something done so that I can accomplish it. Um we trample over things that are deeply beautiful and good, and um you know for some reason as we 're talking i just I just find myself thinking of Brian doyle and um there was something about his writing where he was able to um i think definitely a sense of givenness yeah and and uh and I often wish that that Brian and Eugene could have met cause i think they I think they would have been fast friends. <clears throat>
1: Yeah, I, so they didn't meet. They never met.
0: Not that I know of. No. Did he? Um, did he know Wendell Berry? No, we talked about a fair bit. I did my doctoral work on Wendell's fiction, okay. and uh, and um, so he he asked me a lot about Wendell. I think I mean he he loved Wendell Berry's writing, obviously, and uh-huh. um, and I actually have talked to Wendell a little bit about Eugene but um um but they never met no and in an odd way i almost think that may be best Hmm. why um you have two uh writers and thinkers who see the world in such similar ways and yet there's also just their own like i don't know i just think there's some people that be better friends apart than (laughs) been <laughs> up close, and I just have that sense. Uh that's funny. Um, and
1: while we're at it, I I just loved learning that um, that Frederick Beekner was sitting in the same you know sanctuary with uh, with Eugene Peterson at one
0: point, though they never though they never met. Um, did you tell yeah, that story right. real yeah, real quickly? At, sure. So you know Frederick has has these lines of his own conversion when he was um, sitting there, in Madison Avenue Pre- Presbyterian Church, and that um that powerful sermon of um gladness and and how he was how deeply moved he was and um and Eugene has a very similar story about being in that same sanctuary uh, same year at least um and all of a sudden hearing uh this preacher who, just used language in ways he had never encountered um using before with a treating like this language with a kind of reverence and joy and holiness and um and it just it it did something deep in in eugene's heart and so they were you know they were there at the same time um yeah. and sitting in pew pu- listening to the same same <laughs> sermons
1: your your biography makes um makes Eugene Peterson seem a little zealot like, you know, it's, it's funny how many people he uh, just kind of ran into here and there from Pat Robertson, you know, being a classmate to, to being in the same, you know, church with, with uh, Beekner. to, it's kind of, kind of funny. Or even the people he knew at, at uh, Seattle Pacific, you know, the, the, um, it was just really funny to, to see. Um w- an idea that we, we don't really have time to, to develop this because we're, we're about to get close to the end of our time together. But, but this idea that you touch on that uh, his son, Eric, I think it was Eric who said um, he had one sermon that he kept preaching over and over again. And, and Eugene took that as, you know, as criticism um, until he, until it, it, I guess it was Eric who came back and said, yeah, church is going fine except this, this pastor hasn't found his one sermon yet. And, mm-hmm. And um, and Eugene Peterson finally understood what his son meant. You know that it, that yeah. it wasn't criticism; that it was uh, that's what we're searching for. What what is the one what is what is the one story we're telling?
0: Hmm. Yeah, that was actually leaf. Um, oh, okay. yeah, and yeah, I I think it it kind of bothered Eugene at first, and then and then he he realized, oh yeah, this is a deeply good thing. That something yeah. has so arrested my heart. Um, that something is so sunk into my my being that it's what I give away, and I'm um, yeah. I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for that. My son saw it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I I um, I found that uh, a very encouraging and hope giving insight. And mm. and and you you used the word congruence, or I guess you're borrowing that word congruence from mm-hmm. from Eugene Peterson, you know, that, that we're looking for a life of, of congruence and that his, it certainly felt that his, um, his writing, I mean, everything he did was growing out of the same place. It all, it all felt congruent. Uh,
0: mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That was one of his favorite words. And I think, I think it was true of him.
1: Yeah. Well, I hope it's, uh, I hope it becomes truer of, for many of us yeah me too and and reading eugene peterson's work and reading your book about eugene peterson uh really has it feels like it's a spur to be to be more congruent for for all of to to figure out ways for for all of my life to grow out of the same place so thank you for for your um for your encouragement in that direction um all right, the last question I always ask in these conversations is, who are the writers who make you want to write? I, I think I, I bet I can guess two.
0: <laughs> guess. Go ahead. I'm, well, I'm going to guess
1: three. Uh, Eugene Peterson, yeah. Brian Doyle, Wendell Berry.
0: <laughs> there you go. Yeah, those, I, are, I, those are so unique. That's right. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, it's kind of like whatever is the last good book or last good sentence that you, that you read, right? No. Um, uh th- like this morning I just picked up uh braiding sweetgrass um Robin kimmerer, and okay. um uh just I only read the first couple sentences within her preface, and I was like, oh yeah, so good um but um what comes to mind is uh, maybe Kent Haruff in fiction um yeah. just his language and yeah. um I love i mean mary Carr um goodness um yeah. Kathleen Norris, um, mm-hmm. George Saunders. Yeah, um, have you I definitely have wish you seen,
1: I could, have you read George Saunders' new book, um, "A Swim in a, a Swim in a Pond in the Rain."
0: In my uh, it's in my on my purchase list right now, yeah. but no, I haven't. Yeah, it's
1: great. It's, it's the best thing I've ever read about fiction.
0: Mm. It's so good. Um, and I wish I had a theological sentence like Robert Jensen. So,
1: mm. well, great. All right, when. All right. Thank you. This has been a lot of fun, and I hope we can. Uh, I look forward to seeing what you do next.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
1: This podcast is brought to you by the Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community
0: nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com, and to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate. Special thanks as well to Taylor Linhart for letting us use her song Diamonds as the theme music for Season 3 of The Habit Podcast. You can learn more about Taylor and follow her work at taylorlinhart.com. The
1: Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co.